Hey, what's up everybody? So just a couple of quick housekeeping notes before we get to this week's interview. Um, so for those of you who've been following along, the first edition, the first issue of the Untenured Tracks Literary Journal magazine is out. It's been out for a couple of weeks now. You can download it for free at untenured.space. Uh, if you click on the tab for magazine and go to the current issue, it's, it's right there for you to get. Um, we have uh, over a hundred pages of really incredible fiction and creative nonfiction, and we are hoping to get our second issue out later this year. The call for submissions is currently live on Submittable. Um, we are accepting fiction, creative nonfiction, and poetry. Um, I also want to say that the second Global Empire and Resistance Scholarship Conference, uh, the call for submissions for that is also out. We are targeting May 1st for our second conference. Um, that is also free and entirely online. Uh, this will be the last episode of Untenured Tracks for a little bit. Um, I am teaching five classes this semester. Uh, it's a lot. Um, so five classes on top of uh, running a conference, running a magazine, and trying to get my own creative stuff done and my own scholarship done is a lot to take on. Um, so something's got to give, and it's going to be this, just for a little bit. Um, I am in the process of lining up interviews, um, hoping to have another batch of those done, and then we can start releasing these again um, once the semester gets closer to wrapping up. Um, so thanks again for everybody who stuck with me um, through thick and thin, uh, the ups and downs, the pain, blues, and agony of running an academic podcast um, for the past couple of years. Um, that said, this week's episode is a special bonus episode, a departure from what we've been doing for the past several weeks. Um, this is an interview that I conducted a few weeks ago for WCLH, which is the Wilkes University campus radio station. We had the opportunity to speak with Dr. Pamela Steiner from Harvard about her new book on the Armenian genocide. Uh, along with me in this interview, you will hear Kristen Rock, who is the station manager at WCLH, um, who took the third chair for this interview um, in, our, in our conversation with Dr. Steiner. So I hope that this is um, informative. I hope this is useful. For those of you who are teaching international relations or just looking to learn more about the Armenian Genocide and um, why we should all pay attention to things like this. This is episode 90. Maybe we should do something fun for 100. I don't know what that would be though. At any rate, this is episode 90 of Untenure Tracks. The following interview was conducted on December 17, 2021, with Dr. Pamela Steiner, Senior Fellow at the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Steiner explores the history and psychology of the aftermath of the Armenian Genocide. In her latest work, Collective Trauma and the Armenian Genocide, Armenian, Turkish, and Azerbaijani Relations Since 1839. To contribute to conflict resolution, Steiner, granddaughter of the ambassador of the Ottoman Empire, Henry Morgenthau, explores this case of collective trauma with a focus on psychological healing.
So my name is Dr. Andy Wilczak. I am an associate professor here at Wilkes University, along with Kristen Rock, station manager for WCLH. Um, and joining us today is Dr. Pamela Steiner from Harvard University. Um, we are here to talk about Dr. Steiner's new book, uh, Collective Trauma and the Armenian Genocide, Armenian-Turkish and Azerbaijani Relations Since 1839. Um, Dr. Steiner, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Um, so I was thinking we could start off a little with a little bit of background here because there are folks in our audience who aren't really familiar, might not be familiar with the events of the Armenian Genocide. So I was wondering if we could just dive in with a little bit of background information. Well, let's see. The Armenian Genocide took place starting in 1915 and went on for some years. And it was carried out by the Ottoman government in the course of the First World War. And the Ottoman government was very keen to prevent the Ottoman Empire from falling apart, which it was and had been, believe it or not, for 200 years. Wow. And, and now the falling apart process had speeded up. And one of the things that the many, many different peoples who were under the rule of the Ottoman Empire wanted was out from that rule because they wanted more freedom mm -hmm. and capacity to express themselves. Democracy and the idea of human rights, even if it wasn't called that, was alive and well and even the Ottoman government itself had passed, uh, established a constitution that was supposed to offer that to people, but mm -hmm. it didn't. So the Armenians lived within Turkey, the homeland of the Ottoman Empire, and they had lived there for generations and centuries before the Ottomans came to that territory. And the Armenians were a very successful group, relatively speaking, compared to the general, generality of the Ottoman Muslims. Mm -hmm. The Armenians were Christians. And the Ottoman government was challenged by the demand from the Armenians to have their freedoms and uh, their ability to be treated with some equality in front of the law, which they weren't. Mm -hmm. There were really like two legal systems, one for the Muslims and one for the Christians. So finally, and it's not a slow, simple process, it's a slow-ish process, but not a simple one, but it culminated, uh, many major massacres that occurred, uh, carried out under the eye of the Ottoman government against the Armenians in the 1890s. But the war started, the Second World War, and the First World War, in 1914. And in 1915, the Ottoman government decided we're going to get rid of the Armenians. And they wow. set about it. So that's how it began. Mm -hmm. And what happened thereafter was that Armenians were rounded up, um, from where they lived, the elite Armenians rounded up in Istanbul and shipped off to all over Turkey. Most of them murdered. Um, the uh, peasant classes and the uh, 
middle bourgeoisie, you know, people who ran shops and artisans mm-hmm. um, and lived in the countryside, they were rounded up and sent on what became known as death marches. And they had to walk from where they lived in their villages in the countryside to the Syrian desert, which is just south of the, bo- the south southern part of Turkey. And on the way, most of them died, of course, because they had often hundreds of miles to walk. The right. number of miles varied according to where they lived. And in addition to that, the government worked out some very careful ways of stealing absolutely everything from the Armenians, Mm -hmm. including their insurance policies. Mm -hmm. And uh, my great-grandfather was the U.S. ambassador to Turkey at that time, and he fought the Turkish government as best he could to try to stop the genocide, but of course he did not. But the head of the Turkish government, the Ottoman government, asked him at some point while he was there, which was still fairly early on, whether he would help the Turkish government get the money from the insurance policies. The policies were held with American (laughs) companies to take the money that should have gone to the Armenians who are now dead. Wow. I mean, they did everything. They thought of every single thing. Mm-hmm. They had already stolen a lot of Armenian land, mm-hmm. but the Armenians had lots of land, lots of property, lots of valuables, mm-hmm. and they took it all. And they've never given anything back, and they've never acknowledged any of it. Wow. And they, w- they would send Armenian troops during the war into battles that they knew were, were pretty hopeless, correct? Well, I think there, here's what I know about that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the beginning of the war, the head of the Ottoman military, who was also the Minister of Defense, insisted against better judgment of some of his colleagues to start to, to carry out a huge campaign in the east of Turkey, where the border hit the Russian Empire, which mm-hmm. is now called the South Caucasus. Mm-hmm. And there were many Armenians serving loyally in the Turkish army. That, that's a known fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in that battle, which the Ottomans lost painfully, um, many, many Armenians and everybody else was killed. I mean, mm-hmm. Ottomans and so on. But after that, the Armenians began to be shot the soldiers, if they stayed in the army, they began to be shot they, and, and mistreated in all kinds of ways and reduced from soldiers to work uh, groups mm-hmm. where they had to build the railway and that kind of thing. Same as in Germany during the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Many Jews were deployed in work, what are they called? There's a word for that. Details, I think. Yeah. Details. <laughs> Yeah, um, and it's just such an interesting example, right, of how hatred and nationalism uh, can kind of pervert each other and, and warp each other in, in ways that, that to outsiders, right, like just doesn't make any sense that you would intentionally, um, you know, harm your chances in, in any kind of military conflict for the, for the purpose of, 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 of carrying out this, 
this this policy of genocide and, and hatred that you have. Right. Well, you're saying that they would purposely. Oh, well, no, that wasn't the reason, though, for that loss of that campaign. Mm. Mm. They weren't trying to lose that campaign in order to hurt the Armenians. Oh, Is okay. that what I or did I misunderstand? No, that was my that was my impression. But no, I don't believe that that's true. But what you may be hitting on, which uh, did happen, was the killing of their own soldiers mm-hmm. who were Armenian, yeah, mm-hmm. and making their lives absolutely impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, that they did, yeah, and that. Um, but you're right. In so, but they've hurt. The Ottomans have done nothing but hurt themselves mm-hmm. by that in the normal, what we think of as rational reasons for doing things. Mm-hmm. But here's what I think. <clears throat> the Ottomans were terrified of losing this empire. And that was, to the elite, a traumatic threat. Yeah. Because it meant they would lose their position as the superior people mm-hmm. right. in their country. And, you know, guess what's going on in our country now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that was going to be my, my is, next question for you. Is that yeah, there, I think well, there are... Well, go ahead. Parallels. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. absolutely. And that is, in my opinion, what we, and it is a traumatic threat if you regard, if you identify yourself with the elite and having entitled rights to lord it over other people. Mm-hmm. And you think of yourself as a priori superior. <clears throat> and the Ottoman elite thought that. And uh, the Muslims in general thought that. Right. They thought they were better or uh, because they were Muslim. That's all they I was needed. just going to ask is, is where um, do you have an opinion on, on where that uh, sense of entitlement came from even? Well, that's a great question. And I don't. I don't. <clears throat> Except that psychologically there is now really definitive research on if you're brought up in an authoritarian way mm-hmm. you tend to regard other people as manipulable and as if that's the right way to do things and you either want to be the authority doing that or you want to be living in a society where there is this kind of clear division so there was a lot of trauma in the Turkish culture, as in all cultures Mm -hmm. then, pretty much, but there were degrees of it. But there wasn't some countercultural idea that the, uh, like what we got, which is represented in our constitution and so on, which is that people are created equal and have rights for real, and that we in this country, many of us, have internalized over... generations. Mm -hmm. In Turkey, the, uh, although starting in 1839, the empire adopted uh, the beginnings of reforms in their constitutional, um, they didn't have a constitution yet, but in the kind of laws that ran the country that led toward rights, but they never internalized it. It never was something that enough of them came to identify with and believe in the way, at least in this country, quite a lot of people have identified and believed in. Mm-hmm. 
I think you made a good point in in talking about and saying that that the people there thought you know freedom, democracy, human rights, uh, all of these things were 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 um were going to be available to them, right? They had hope for that. The Armenians did, yeah. But yeah. I don't know what the Muslims did. They weren't as the Armenians were much better educated at all levels. All classes of Armenians were better educated than the classes of. Ottoman Turks. Well, so so that leads into maybe um, this this question because you had talked about yeah this uh, there, there's all these classes right the elite the middle the 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 poverty stricken it didn't matter they were all um, led to these death marches and and all of this and in a way uh, those labels that they were so worried about in the beginning uh, didn't matter at the end either. Well, not among the Armenians, no. they were all being. Slaughtered, right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of them got out, mm-hmm. and they didn't manage to kill everybody because, as you know, there uh, are fine population. I mean, and a lot of Armenians had left the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century when the other massacres were going on. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. So a whole lot of the Armenians who came to the United States, for example, and populate places in Glendale, California, and Watertown, Massachusetts, for example, were people who came in the 1890s during the so-called bloody massacres. Uh, The the sultan was called the bloody sultan. Wow. (laughs) What a name. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so, Dr. Steiner, I'm curious. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but one of the one of your goals for your work is to introduce this idea of um, collective trauma into conflict resolution. And so, I'm curious why that hasn't happened previously. Well, that's a great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> really, and I think it's a very deep question for me. And I think that it is because psychology is still, you know, people can't admit they need it, especially mm-hmm. high-functioning people. <laughs> they, they go to therapy all the time. Right. <laughs> but they don't own up to it, you know. I mean, I will, let, and therefore, let me own up to mine. I've had masses of therapy, 11 years in psychoanalysis, and I've done all kinds of group therapy, and I'm a therapist, you yeah. know. And I've, I've learned the latest, uh, one of the most important recent trauma healing methods, which I think is brilliant. But I think it's mostly from the fact of wanting to keep it at a distance and not taking in how high-functioning people can be traumatized and not show it, especially not show it in an obvious way. Right. Especially if you have power, and I make a big point of this in my book, that when uh, trauma is mostly about power, it is being over, the experience of being traumatized is to be overpowered hmm. by a power greater than you, a person, a hurricane, um, a car accident, something has mm-hmm. forced you to be miserable and hurt, be hurt, right, you know, right. and lose something. A, pan- I mean, a pandemic. In general terms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and people who retain power, and the elite may get traumatized, but they can still have power, mm. they are managed to hide it better. And, and, and the thing is that so much policy is made. Then there's this other belief, by the way, that, that is predominant, which prevents a serious psychology coming into 
conflict resolution work, which is that we're rational beings fundamentally. Well, increasingly, I mean, people say it all the time, but they don't get listened to because uh, people don't know how to deal with emotions except Mm -hmm. therapists, mostly. So you get this nonsense that we're fundamentally driven by rationality. I mean, Reason's terribly important, and we use it well in many cases, mm-hmm. but we don't use it well. Our ultimate goal, our ultimate energy comes from our motivations. Motivation right. means to move. Emotion means to move. And what moves us are what we care about, mm-hmm. and those are things that have emotional names to them. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we can recognize that and work with that, I think we could transform just an enormous amount in this world. Right. You know, that's kind of what we're getting at is that this uh, this event, um, the Armenian uh, genocide, has led to all of these other things in history. Um, can you elaborate may- maybe a little on that, like bringing it from, sure. you know, how do we scale it to now, you know? Yes, Exactly. Exactly, and I I can do that about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as yeah. well, which I worked with quite a lot. Yeah, I'm curious to hear well, about that. What, yeah. yeah, what happens with um, all of us when we get badly traumatized is if we're feeling it at the moment, we can't think too well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that if that happens at a large scale, that becomes a collective thinking problem. Ah. And then, you know... Politicians reflect that, if presuming they can think straight. <laughs> Quite often, they also are mode. You know, their emotions are in the way. Their past events, their triggers, their commitments, right. and they're all very important things. There's nothing. You know, we're all a bit traumatized. Maybe most of us have some of it, yeah. and um, it's. I mean, it's the normal state of things, but we do need to, if we want to manage our public affairs better, mm-hmm. to get aware of that so it doesn't get in the way of making very good decisions. Now, to take it to the Armenians and Turks, what has happened, and the Azerbaijanis, is that Turkey, as I said, has continued, uh, the Ottoman Empire did come to an end. Mm-hmm. And the Republic of Turkey was born. Well, the Republic of Turkey could have acknowledged that there had been a genocide committed by their predecessing government, but they never have. Instead, they deny it, even to the crazy mm-hmm. point of saying the the prime minister, the president of Turkey, has even said, and I quote him in my book: "No, there was no genocide because no Muslim." could commit genocide. In other words, it's such a terrible thing that no no Muslim would ever do such a thing. Mm-hmm. Now, the Turks are very keen on their honor, mm-hmm. and to say to them, your country committed genocide is a dishonor mm. to them. So, And most people can't handle shame, and in public, even right. worse. Mm-hmm. So this is something which um, they know they should be ashamed of, even if they're not. Right. And um, so that's part of the reason that's kept them quiet. The other reason is the reparations that they should have paid mm-hmm. um, and haven't are it just unbelievably huge. I mean, they're enormous. Uh, and, and that meant that at the end of the war, the Ottoman army tried to go into the South Caucasus 
and get rid of all the Armenians who had fled there and who lived there anyway, because the Russian Empire had just about as many Armenians living in that part of the world as Armenians lived in the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. So the Ottoman army invaded the Transcaucasus at the end of the war. The Russian revolution had taken place, and the Russian troops had been withdrawn from there. And they had the aim to take over, to get rid of the Armenians as a collective presence, and to take over more that, that they could. They didn't really need to, because the the remaining population was mostly in the far east of the South Caucasus anyway, Muslim. Right. So, But they went all the way to Baku, where they became very good friends with the Azerbaijanis for re- good reasons. The Azerbaijanis and the Armenians had committed a mutual set of terrible massacres against each other uh, shortly before that, a few months before the Ottoman army arrived there. So now the, main, uh, the, the Turks have never withdrawn their aim of taking over the South Caucasus. So they, how they're going about it now appears to be making very good friends with the Azerbaijanis who are trying, in my opinion, <clears throat> to get rid of the Armenians again as a collective presence in that part of the world. Because there is a little tiny state called Armenia in the South Caucasus, mm-hmm. right next to Azerbaijan. Now, I don't know if that's way too many things. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was that was great. Um, so I'm I'm wondering, you know, we've talked about how this is an intergenerational problem, and so how does how does conflict resolution factor into it when there is this intergenerational piece to it? Because, you know, I, I have to imagine similar to what we've seen in the U.S. with misinformation about slave trade and slavery in the U.S. and with the Native American genocide and and how that has been had been warped and mm-hmm. everything in, in, in the preceding centuries. Um, I have to imagine that there's something similar happening in, in Turkey, right, with the facts of the genocide and, and people's perception of it and yeah. and different, um, I hate to say fake news, but different <laughs> different ways that, that people are, are manipulating the public around this event. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, Absolutely. I'm wondering how, how do you co- do conflict resolution? Number one, whether there's this time piece to it, um, you're trying to resolve a conflict that people were involved in, even though they weren't really, cause it was <clears throat> so long ago. Is that yeah. What you mean? Yeah. And then also with, um, in the age of, of social media and the internet with all this misinformation that is spread much more easily than it was in the past. Yeah. Well, it, there's all, there are many, many kinds of conflict resolution processes, but the ones I've been involved in haven't incorporated this material nearly as much as they should because, you see, one of the awful things is that nobody ever has enough time, and people who are up there making decisions and are active about these conflicts are especially pressed for time. So they never have enough time to to do what it would take mm-hmm. to really get clear about these things. I mean, psychological work takes time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm even though we've speeded it up a lot, but it still takes time. And um, so, and then there's this resistance. So I'm working, you know, I'd love to see some improvement in conflict resolution processes. And that was the ultimate goal of my book, to, to help improve, con- which are, they're wonderful processes. I don't mean to say they're not, they're terrific, but they need this addition to them. 
I feel. Yeah. So, but you're right that misinformation, lying, denial is very out there. And Turkey doesn't even begin to have the amount of open society that we have in this country. Mm-hmm. For example, it is a criminal offense to talk about the Armenian genocide in Turkey. Mm-hmm. And you can go to jail for wow. years. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, but there are, you know, some people have done it, and there is a cohort of uh, intellectuals who don't use the word genocide all the time, but mm-hmm. they do talk about it. And uh, But things have gotten quite bad in Turkey in recent years, so there's less and less of that. Mm-hmm. The relationship has deteriorated very badly. <clears throat> and um, Erdogan, who is the, uh, the president of Turkey, is trying to make himself into a permanent fixture and mm-hmm. a kind of increasing dictator. So it's very bad. It's very bad. It almost sounds like the Turkish government needs just one big group therapy session to admit that there was a problem. Then you can work through all those uh, stages in in just kind of how therapy is, right? Like it's almost so you obvious that right. that's what they need, right? <laughs> exactly. They, it really does. But so do we. Oh, for sure. So, oh, yeah. No. And so do the Armenians mm-hmm. because they are profoundly traumatized as a people. And there are many terrifically able Armenians who that are probably scared off. to even say anything and speak up. Well, some of them do, but yeah. most of them surely cannot. But mm-hmm. now, with the threat from Azerbaijan against the state of Armenia, and Azerbaijan, I mean, Armenia is attempting to be a more enlightened democracy, but they're having a struggle. Mm-hmm. But Azerbaijan is an out and out dictatorship. And um, you can't say anything there. So yeah, it's it's tough. It's really really tough. I seem to like tough problems, but it <laughs> is really tough. And in terms of transmitted trauma, and let me mm-hmm. just mention something about the Israeli Palestinian thing. Remember that um, there were some Jews in in what was Palestine before the state of Israel was founded in mm-hmm. 1948. But most Jews moved there from parts of Europe, survivors Mm -hmm. of the Holocaust. And the right to have a state was given to them at that time. However, that doesn't mean you got a nation full of healed Mm -hmm. people, healed from trauma. You got a nation full of traumatized people. And it's my view, yes, the threat of the Palestinians um, for that state uh, was terribly upsetting to them. I mean, they didn't count the Palestinians as having any real identity and so on. However, the way the state of Israel has handled their relationship with the Palestinian is shameful beyond measure Mm -hmm. and makes, in my opinion, I'm a Jew, (laughs) and um, I've been there many times Mm -hmm. and worked with people on this, and I work with the kind of people who also think it's shameful. They and and they just seem to me to be reliving their terror of trauma and overcoming it, Mm -hmm. but landing it on the Palestinians. So they landed on another people who are weaker yeah. than they are because yeah. they can do it because and they can, it's an yeah. acting out and mindless it is and i was just gonna say it's almost like an acting out like it's like i was treated this way so i'm gonna treat you that way and it's like this cycle of um 
violence, violence, yeah. and um, yes. and and yes. power, and mm-hmm. and control. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I was I was curious um, if you if you're familiar with the book A Paragon by Colin McKinn. No. So he uh, he writes about um, a Palestinian man and, a, and an Israeli man who both lost kids in the conflict, mm. and they're both part of what's called the Parents Group. Um, oh, I know about that. You know about the parents sure. group, yeah, yeah. So oh, yeah. Um, it is it is a fabulous book. Um, uh, Colm came to our campus over the summer to do a reading hmm. um, from it, and it was it's just incredible. So I would uh, I will I will hype Colm again anytime I get the chance to because it's yeah. it's it's such an interesting um, point of view, point right? of view, and and just the story, right? And and seeing how these men process this trauma. Yep. That's hard. The thing, it really, what's so amazing, and but it is and it isn't, is that, you know, you can do a ton of work on yourself psychologically, and mm-hmm. you can even have made you get your life into reasonable shape. <clears throat> but when these issues come up, it can, you can be triggered all over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It won't be as strong if you've done a lot of work, but you still may have to cope with serious triggering. And that's when people act out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so kind of similar to that, Dr. Sander, the last question I think that I wanted to ask you about today, um, you are, you're coming to this work um, from a restorative justice perspective, and I know that there are folks in our audience who would be very curious to hear more about restorative justice, and especially how it applies to conflict resolution. Um, so if you wouldn't mind um, just talking about that um, a little bit. Well, I have confessed that I've never been, uh, I've never studied what restorative justice is. Mm-hmm. So if you, I, I have a general idea. Okay. Um, but maybe you could help me there and mm-hmm. give me a little bit more guidance about what you're like. Yeah. So um, my understanding of restorative justice is that it's, uh, it is neither retributive or rehabilitative. It's this idea of um, taking both victim offender and then the community that they live in and trying to um, uh, strengthen relationships and, and repair the damage that was happened uh, or that that was that happened um, including to uh, you know whatever whatever trauma or, or other social factors that led to that crime happening in the first place right so if this was going to be something so I know like for example a lot of high schools have, restorative justice circles or things that are restorative justice like to help deal with bullying where you would have right yeah you know, i think that's fine uh, i've got it okay uh, that is great but the thing is that when it's done for example in this country it's done in a context where there is a um a government that will hold people accountable if they've committed a crime mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you take the scale of genocide and mm-hmm. the level of crime, I don't think res- restorative justice is great when you've got some kind of safety guarantee for the parties involved mm-hmm. and you've gotten some justice because mm-hmm. the main criminals have to be held responsible, it seems to me. Now, I know that some people, you know, there are some cultures where it seems to have happened on a small local scale, as in Rwanda, mm-hmm. where some restorative justice efforts have worked. But I understand Rwanda's not in great shape. So I don't know, and I'm not up to date on mm-hmm. that. But um, I personally think that the restorative justice can work, say, for example, if there were some kind of guarantee that meant something, 
meant something mm-hmm. between Azerbaijan and Armenia that meant the Armeni- the uh, Azerbaijanis were not going to try to keep taking the Armenians' territory and they were going to give back the prisoners of war. You know, if they had done some things that showed they really wanted to end the war that they had last year and begin to treat the Armenians like other human beings that they'd like to get along with in a real way, not in a power-over way. Mm-hmm. But they haven't. So, But if they were to have done that, Restorative justice efforts would be fantastic, hmm. community to community. But I don't think it's a full substitute for hmm. justice mm-hmm. or, for co- or for trauma work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we've talked a lot about trauma today. And uh, one thing I was, I'm curious about, because I've been reflecting a lot on it for my own career, is how, um, how we are affected by doing the work that we do, especially those of us who are studying really... Um, traumatizing things I, I, there's no other way to put it so i'm just curious like what's it been like for you being a part of these mediations and mm, being able to question. travel to these regions and and sort of seeing um firsthand uh the 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 horrible things that people have experienced well i mean i could answer that in different ways mm-hmm. mostly i don't i get depressed about how we're in a place where none of these things have worked yet, really. Right. Mm-hmm. The Israeli-Palestinian is no better, and the Armenian-Turkish-Azerbaijani thing is no better. So that's depressing, and that's why I wrote the book. So I thought I'd something contribute right. to one part of the process. Absolutely. Just to one part, um, but not more. It's no way the whole answer, but it's a very important one in my view. Um but seeing places turn to rubble is horrible. Mm-hmm. And reading descriptions is horrible. Mm-hmm. But you know what? This country is so rich and so ugly almost everywhere, with mm-hmm. garbage strewn everywhere, mm-hmm. with terrible developments, commercial developments yeah. all over the place around cities and so on, mm-hmm. big highways cutting through. That makes me tell you what, even more depressed. Yeah. Because I've been an environmentalist for 50 years or something. Mm -hmm. It's just horrific. So, Mm -hmm. although I enjoy my life and I'm very lucky, I have a wonderful husband and two great kids and so on, and I have friends and I'm lucky. I am healthy and so on. But I'm worried. Right. I am. We have to confront this stuff. It has to be a massive change in culture. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, it it was... A way of thinking. It has to change, yeah. Yes, and Turkey is a beautiful country, and it was painful to see uh, these beautiful streams winding through the mountain areas and the valleys that go with the mountains, but strewn, strewn with paper uh, plastic bags (sighs) all over everything. Um, We've got new problems to figure them out. Yeah. But they do include problems from the past. Right. They do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think um, taking up a lot of your time, Dr. Steiner. So thank you so much um, for coming on to talk about your book, Collective Trauma and the Armenian Genocide. Great. And I love to talk to you guys. You were great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Anytime. Anytime.